This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Michael Linzar. Michael, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show, Charles. It's uh, good to be back. Well, sort of back anyway, sort of sideways. Yeah, uh, we had you on not too terribly long ago. In fact... Um, I remember um, having you on the show and thinking, we haven't had him on yet, and it turned out we hadn't. So That's right. Yeah, that was episode 308 uh, back in April of 2017, and now we're there in 2018. So, time flies. Yeah, time does fly. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I'm, I'm curious just to uh, kick this off, if you could uh, just introduce yourself, let people know, you know who you are and what you do, and then we'll, sure. uh, we'll dive into these questions. Sure. So, it, uh, obviously, just said my name, Michael Linzer. I've started a Ruby on Rails consultancy in 2010, mm-hmm. uh, and that's reinteractive. That's been been growing every year since, and we're doing quite well, thank you. Um, but I'm probably most well known in the Ruby community for being the original author of the Mail Gem and getting that merged into Rails and removing the Tmail library from Rails. Uh, and I quite happily, I think still, although I haven't seen an updated metric, I'm pretty sure I still hold the record for the most number of lines of code deleted from the Rails code base. And uh, I'm very proud of that one. I think awesome. I was, about, yeah, it was pretty good. I think I was sitting at about negative uh, 37,000 lines net contribution, um, which was, yeah, That's pretty awesome. great. <laughs> <Net> <laughs> I was very about that one. That's right. That that's a different kind of technical debt. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, um, so that was that was a lot of fun, and uh, and yeah. So I I have a couple of SaaS startups uh, as well. I started a couple of companies and sold them. So most recently was um, my software as a service platform, Flood.io, which I was the co-founder on. Uh, successfully sold and exited that around July last year, and uh, yeah, I've got a training product and some business management products that are online as SaaS products as well. So I keep myself rather busy. Oh, well, that's that's good for you. <laughs> yeah, works out well. Yep. And on a personal note, you said you just, you and your uh, significant my other wife, just had a baby. Yep. My wife and I, we, we just gave birth to a, a beautiful baby girl. And that was one month and three days ago. And yes, I'm counting every minute of it. Uh, it's it's quite a cycle of action uh for anyone who's become a new parent so and yeah over christmas and and all that stuff so it's been a a very interesting month but definitely worth it yeah i'll bet is this your first yep it's definitely my first oh boy are uh, you in for it i know right that's what i keep getting told and it's like this (laughs) impending doom yeah but anyway 
we'll see what happens. So like, you know, when you hit hit publish on that on that commit and you're not sure if it's gonna work or not in production and you're just crossing your fingers, that times a million. You know, it's just not sure uh, how everything works out. But you know, we've been going really well so far and, and she's she's growing up really well and, and all that sort of thing. So I think we'll be fine. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. I, and, and it highlights something that I'm really trying to accomplish with this show that, you know, we have people like you on the show. We talk about code. We talk about, um, how we write software and the technical details of the software and the libraries we use and the frameworks that we pull together to use. And we're all still people, right? You know, that's right. we're, we're, we're out there, uh, having babies and, uh, taking care of, uh, other family members, you know, I'm going through some stuff with my dad due to his health and, you know, it's, we, we all do the people thing too. So. Oh, definitely. It's, it's way too easy to get caught up in the hype of the internet that everyone's out there crushing it with no problems in their lives whatsoever. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, coding and, and what we do, it, you know, I consider myself exceptionally privileged mm-hmm. that I can do what I do for a job and get paid for it. You know, it's, it still freaks me out to this day. People actually pay me to do this. You know, it's, and you know, my reinteractive is now approaching 40 staff. So, you know, I don't get to do huge amounts of coding. Um, but I still dive in there. I probably do between eight and 10 hours a week of coding and I'm able to do it because I've set up the company properly and, and, you know, I can handle all this stuff, but you know, a lot of my time sales and all sorts of things, but still it's, you know, it's a, it's a hobby and, people are paying me good money for it and I'm able to pay my staff good money for it and they can all work from home and they can have their life. And it's amazing. It really is amazing. This world we live in, but yeah, you've got to remember that behind every success story is a thousand and one cuts that happened that hardened that individual up to the point where they became a success. And uh, it's too easy just to look at people and go, Oh, well, you know, he, he picked the right lottery numbers last night and now he's a success. And, uh, that's why he's a success. Well, you know, that person you're looking at, you know, she might've been turned down a thousand times and had crushing defeats in her life before she became that success. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah, so let's, let's get into your story. I am going to take us back to code. How did you get into programming in the first place? (laughs) So I was actually working as a, as a volunteer for a church, um, full time. And you don't earn a lot of money when you're doing that. I found out later. Uh, but anyway, (laughs) That, that was good. They, they provided like housing and, and clothing and food and all that sort of stuff. So I was very well looked after. Right. And as I was doing that, uh, we built a parishioner management system, if you like, you know, just a way to contact everyone. And, and I started coding this and it was about the time that Rails 0.7 something was released. I don't know if it was 7.5 or 0.8 or something like that. Anyway, I watched the blog because before that I was a, a PHP I don't know if I'd call myself a PHP developer, but I knew how to cut and paste PHP code very well. And I built up. Yeah, it was a skill, man. You know, having to make sure you remembered to make that database connection at the top of every single file, you know. And uh, yeah, anyway, those were the days. So I was on that and I saw this blog, this uh, The Whoops video by DHH. Uh, classic video and if you're a Rails dev and you've never watched it, you should watch that. It's pretty cool to the the history of your life and decided, okay, that looks easier than what I'm doing and a lot more structured. And so I started writing a Rails app 
to run this whole parishioner management system. And that was in like 2006, I think, seven, six, mm-hmm. something like that. And then as I was building it, and I was just building it by myself, and I think this is one of the, the critical benefits of Rails, by the way, that you can build things by yourself. Uh, as I was building that out, then I ran into this problem with uh, the mail, email component. We we kept having incoming emails getting crashing the system, like crashing the entire server. So we'd, we'd read an incoming email and the whole server would crash. And oh, I'd have man. to start the server. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I investigated and found out that there's a requirement in the email RFC which says you must accept any email that comes into the system and if you can't parse it, then you must let it through, right? And that makes sense when you think about it because, you know, if you've got a mail server running on version one and the new email spec has come out with this new feature that is going to be supported by mail servers version two, you don't want the version one server just deleting the email. You want to be able to let that go through and maybe the next server in the chain is going to understand that feature and then implement it or do something with it. So you've got to let it through, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. But people who send our favorite use of email on the internet, our friends <laughs> that do spam, figured out that this is a way to just bypass all of the spam filters because what you do is you just send a malformed email and then the mail server is going to let it through. It's not going to send it to its spam server because it doesn't understand the email. Right. So they would just do this and that would just raise exceptions and then the spam would get through. And uh, I thought, I looked at this and went, oh my God, genius. All I need to do to remove all of the spam from the entire server is just wrap the parsing in a in a rescue block and screw it, I'll just delete everything that, that is valid because, because it must be spam and we're the final hop on the chain. We're not sending it to anywhere else. So I don't care if it has an unsupported feature. Bob's your uncle, you know, which is a great Australian saying. So in my naivety, I turned that on and pushed that to production. And um, a couple of days, it, it worked great. You know, the server didn't crash. Emails were flying. Everything was going great. I even had staff coming up and saying, hey, the system's running a lot faster now. You know, I'm getting, the emails are coming in really quickly and it's all good. And I'm like, awesome. I, I totally solved it. I don't know why the rest of the email community even had a problem with spam in the first place. They're just idiots, right? Anyway. About 36 or two days, 36 hours, two days later, um, my boss's boss came down to tell me that my boss's boss's boss suddenly had lost all of their emails from their international counterparts and none of them were coming through and they couldn't understand where they went. And I had that sinking, sinking sensation in my stomach of, oh my God, what have I done? So then I went and had a look and I managed to catch these incoming emails that were from the international, you know, head office sort of thing. And I found out that they were being sent by Microsoft Outlook. And what do you know? Microsoft Outlook didn't comply with the mail spec uh, RFC 822, and they were sending malformed emails that were in violation of some of the basic principles of what you meant to do with an email. And my spam catcher was happily going, it's a Microsoft email, it must be spam delete. <laughs> so so then I had to roll back my brilliant solution and I had this regex regular expression filter from hell to try and catch the Microsoft emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also found out that basically every spam bot sends their email as if it's a Microsoft Outlook email. So that screwed me over again. And uh, 
I went, ah, oh, screw this. Then I contacted the owner of Tmail at the time, and this was back when it was on SourceForge. And uh, I said, hey, do you mind if I take over? I want to do these patches and upgrade Tmail and try and make it better. And he was like, hell yeah, take it, which should have been a sign, you know. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I should have probably gone, hang on, that was a bit too easy. But anyway, I screwed that one up. And I started trying to patch Tmail. I just couldn't do it. It was like beyond my ability to understand the uh, parse tree and all of this sort of stuff. I was basically a beginning programmer. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, look, I've got all these RFC documents. How hard could it be to create an email handling library? It can't be that hard. Famous last words. Famous last words. So I, I created the MailJam and I started. And nine months later, I realized it was actually pretty hard. And I think there's about 40 RFCs that cover email. Uh-huh. And I got enough of it implemented that it was expanding. Like it was feature parity with Tmail and some. Um, and at that point, I went, well, this is good enough for me. And uh, we started using it in all of our Rails apps. And then I did a pull request into Action Mailer. And I think it was in RubyConf 2012 or something or 2011. Um, I was sitting around a table with myself and Jose Valim, who helped me do the migration, and DHH, and we were all just banging out a new Action Mailer API while the conference was going on. And um, and yeah, then we released it. And so that's how I ended up, you know, having a gem that's been downloaded breathtakingly a hundred million times, which is just mind-boggling. That's awesome. And that was all done just from first principles, you know. I'd, I'd never, I'd done a, a little bit of sort of object-oriented programming at school, but it was all from a business sense. Mm-hmm. And there was no real, uh, I just sort of looked at it and started creating it in a structured manner, as structured as I could. And I've had many comments since that it's one of the most organized code-based, one of the most organized code bases that people have seen, and uh, which I'm quite proud of that it still sort of works to this day. You know, more recently, uh, Jeremy Kemper, Bitsweep from um, 37 Signals, has been leading the charge on development. And it, he needs most, if not all, of the kudos for the past year and a half or two years working on it. And uh, he's just amazing to work with. And that is one smart guy. You know, I don't pretend to be anywhere near what he can do. But, um, but yeah, the, the mail gem, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's really opened a lot of doors and given myself some confidence that I can, you know, tackle some of the bigger problems. That's awesome. That, and it's interesting, too, because I think we all kind of think that the pe- the people writing the code that we use must be some kind of amazing geniuses that have been programming forever. And we don't realize that I went and downloaded this gem that somebody may have started writing when they were pretty new to programming. And yeah. over the years, it's turned into something maybe a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit better put together, a little bit more thought out but yeah initially yeah that's I mean, where it look, to, give, to give listeners an example when i when i started building the mail gem right um i knew that there was such a thing as a block and that you could yield to it but mm-hmm. i only knew it from within the context of rails doing respond to do once html once javascript type thing and it was only ever a mechanical understanding. And, and when I started writing the mail gem, I wrote a DSL, which included a, a block as part of how you could send an email, you know, mail, new, do, right. to, Bob, from, Sam, 
subject, blah, body, text file, right? End. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that. But I spent three weeks after I wrote that in the text editor trying to figure out how blocks work to make that work. Wow. Because I had no idea. None whatsoever. And just sitting there trying again and again and again and again and again and again, <laughs> reading everything I could about blocks and just being totally confused by it. And just getting to a point where I kept putting, you know, puts, puts debug string throughout my entire mail app to try and understand how that block thing actually worked. <laughs> and it took me weeks to figure it out. And then I did and then it clicked and then we went from there. But this happened again and again and again. When I, when I created the, the paths tree for mail, I was basically creating a, a syntax tree. And that did my head in for about a month, you know, but I just started with a very fundamental thing. You know, can the syntax tree read a string? Yes, it can. Good. Now, can we read that it's either this type of string or that type of string? Yes, we can. Mm -hmm. And just kept building on it. And um, yeah, that luckily we can do this in our industry, you know. Yep. I did this at night. I wrote the mail gem between about 9.30 p.m. and midnight for about eight months after I finished all of my work and everything. So, and that's how I taught myself Ruby by writing a mail gem. Highly recommended, you know, <laughs> if, someone, if someone really wants to learn Crystal or Elixir or, um, you know, Erlang or whatever, find a, find a library that people use because they have to, but everyone hates it and then rewrite it. Right. And you learn that language very fast. Yeah, Makes sense. So uh, I, I love the story. Um, I, I kind of want to go back a little bit earlier. Um, you yep. mentioned that you had been doing PHP before that. How did you get into coding? Like the first time you wrote code, how did you get into coding? The first time I wrote code, I was flying back from visiting my dad and I had a IBM 8086 XT sitting in the uh, cargo hold, which we had to pay excess baggage for because it weighed about 15 kilos. Uh -huh. And it had two, two 320K floppy disks on it. And uh, no one could believe we'd ever need more storage than that. <laughs> and it had a whopping, whopping one megabyte of RAM, which like, seriously, what are you going to do with that? Um, so, which is interesting because you'd need to load three floppy disks to fill the RAM up um, uh -huh. at boot time, right? And on the way back, I was sitting there looking at the DOS manual and it was talking about how you could do things using DOS and scripting it. And I thought, oh, I could build a game with this, you know. Um, because at school, we'd been working on 32-bit BBC micros, which only had 32K of RAM. And, you know, we'd made screensavers and, and things like that. I think actually my first real programming experience was working out how to um, pick up the, uh, the packets off the BBC micro on the network and we discovered the the primary login for the uh, the school administrator by sniffing the wire, uh, which we thought was pretty clever. But anyway, I digress. I don't think I should talk about that too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just this this interest in I could make something do something in a controlled manner and just create. You know, I I saw programming at the very start as as a creative activity. And I was always amazed and awed about these games that came out and how complex they were. And, and fundamentally, I knew that it was just a person sitting there typing. Um, you know, back in the days when Dr. Dobbs manuals came out and they had the program listings and 
I'd meticulously sit there for two hours typing out the whole thing uh, only to have my sister trip over the power cord and the whole thing get erased. Um, you know, things like this that, that happened all the way through my childhood of just exploring. And then when I got into university, um, I did a business information systems course and that had some programming in it and Visual Basic and that got me interested there. And it was, wasn't until I started running my own or started working on my own internet provider uh, back in about 1997 or something that I actually started coding web pages uh, for the ISP. And that was when I really got into understanding PHP and how it worked. And then it grew from there. And I just outgrew, I don't know if I can say, I, out, I don't know if you can say you outgrew PHP because the biggest website on the internet runs on it. So I don't think that's a fair statement, but <laughs> I, I did get to a point where I thought, well, okay, you know, this, this Rails thing looks like I can optimize for me as a single lone developer and, and move in that direction. Yeah, I have to say that's that's one thing that I really love about Rails is, um, you know, I'm working on a SaaS right now on my own. And yeah, I mean, I can work on it on my own. I can get a ton of stuff done. You know, I can sit down for a couple hours and I can bang out a new feature. Yeah. And it's it's just amazing that way. And um, especially as mature as the ecosystem has become now, I can usually find something that will get me part the way there if it's anything close to a standard feature that other people have needed. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, I run a, a development agency now, so I've got 20 or 30 incredibly highly skilled developers working for me, um, you know, and in, in many respects, much better than I am or could ever be on writing code. You know, they're, they're way more meticulous than I am. Mm-hmm. They pay attention to many more details than I do. Um, but the, the thing that we've maintained in our company and, and the thing that, we've, that I want to maintain is that this idea that you don't have to have, you know, 15 different frameworks to, to produce a business app or even two different frameworks. You know, I mean, it, when, when Angular started getting real momentum a couple of years ago and then React a couple of years ago or, or Angular a few uh-huh. years ago, React a couple of years ago, and now, you know, all the other ones that are coming out, you know, they're all well and good. And, and I'm sure there is a team size at which that becomes more efficient. But I really feel that the truth of it is that 90% plus, 95, I mean, I don't know what the metric is, but that's from my own experience of business apps and apps that actually earn income out there can be produced in their initial and medium to large term basis, just using rails with all the core features. And I like what DHH said, you know, a sprinkle of JavaScript and, and a lot of apps can be handled with that. You know, the added complexity of, of all the front end frameworks, you've got to rebuild MVC on the front end or, or you do what react does and just replace the whole DOM every time you do something or, or part of the DOM or whatever, but you know, the, doing all of that just gives you so many more failure points and so many more places where you can get it wrong. You know, so anyway, I'm I'm pretty yeah. a strong proponent about that. And you know, the other point to sort of remember is, I think anyway, I deal with hundreds of customers <clears throat> and have looked at probably close to this side of 200 Rails apps, and. Customers don't care really what it's built in. As long as it can be built, it's stable, it's easy to maintain, it's easy to upgrade, 
and they can find a developer in six months or a year that knows how to fix it. And the beauty about building it just in Rails with a sprinkle of JavaScript is even if you're a brand new Rails developer and you've maybe had six months experience dabbling with it, mm-hmm. if I give you a large production Rails app that's just using Rails and just using some JavaScript, I can give you a task and you will be able to fix it. It might take you a week, <clears throat> whereas an experienced dev might find it in a day, but you'll be able to fix it. You, it's simple enough to be able to load up the entire thing in your head, um, almost no matter the size of the app. And, and that's magic. Yep, absolutely. It's a very interesting, yeah. Yep, absolutely. And, yeah. and I'm constantly batting down new and shiny, you know. And having said that, our developers, we, we do a day of professional development every week where they just focus on improving their skills. And on those professional development days, they'll go and build a project in React or they'll go and build a project in Angular or, or they'll make a, a native mobile or use TurboLinks or, or what have you. <clears throat> but that's also because our clients bring an app to us sometimes that have these frameworks in it and we need to be able to understand and work on them. But right. those apps are, are uniformly more complex than, than everything else you know, that we build from scratch. Yeah, so we, we had DHH on a, a, a few weeks ago and you know, we, we talked to him about his approach to Rails and JavaScript and JavaScript sprinkles and he mentioned stimulus and stimulus is sort of a drop in, I guess, replacement. I don't know. I, I don't love the way to put it, but it's a framework yep. that gives you a lot of the um, common uh, JavaScript stuff that you're going to need in order to build a, a page that does generally what a lot of these other um, systems do without having to have the big complicated framework on the front. Yeah. I think the key, the key selling point of sprinkles, I think he mentioned at some point, it's sort of defined by what it, what it does not do. Um, and I think the, the key selling point is that all of the templates and all of the code sits up on the server. And there's one location that you need to look at for all of that stuff. And it's in your view folder and you're diving into that view folder and you can see what's getting built because the same template that's being used by Sprinkles to render the next widget that you're adding to the screen is the same one that generated all the widgets anyway, and that's all sitting up on the server and you can just read it and it's good. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. Um, our clients don't want to spend double the development cost so that they can use Backbone. You know, yeah. uh, sorry, not Backbone. Um, React. Angular or React, yeah. So, you know, our we look, here's a crazy example. We had a client come to us and say, hey, can you help rescue this project? And I'm like, of course we can. What is it? And they said, well, we got some interns to build a careers page. And I went, okay, what do you need rescued on it? And they said, well, they've been going for six months now and uh, it's still not live. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I dove into it and they were using, they built an entire stack in Rails and they built all of the database stuff. And then they built this entire thing in React on top of that. And, 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 and they were mm-hmm. literally trying to use every bright and shiny feature that they could as part of building this app. And all the client wanted was to be able to post jobs, accept applicants, and send them emails. I mean, it's a week-long project in Rails. Now, obviously, they're interns. And obviously, a really you know, competent React developer would have also done it in one week, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the point is that it's just this example of um, 
you know, Facebook users react. Facebook is successful, therefore I must use React. It's it's like a inappropriate allocation of causality. You know, that that they're not the fact that Facebook users react is not why Facebook is successful. And you can almost go as far as saying if you're using the inappropriate technology, and I'm not saying React's inappropriate all the time, there are plenty of very successful React apps out there. But if you're using an inappropriate technology from the misguided belief that that's why some really large successful company is doing it, then you're wasting money. Um, and that's money is is what makes and pays your wage, you know? <laughs> yep, absolutely. Now, we did uh, earlier today, we talked to uh, jo- Justin Gordon and Rob Weiss from Shaka Code. They're the guys that built React on Rails. And, oh, nice. you know, so we had the same conversation, right? Work. Yeah. And I'd love to. What was that? They, I mean, they've done amazing work, yes. you know, to pull all that together and, and kudos to them, i got to say. And I'd yeah. love to hear that podcast. I'll, I'll make sure I listen to it. Yeah, it'll come out in a few weeks. But uh, in fact, it may come out, probably will come out before this episode comes out. So listener, go listen to it. But anyway, <laughs> um, one of the conclusions that, uh, you know, we put out there, because we asked them the same question, you know, it's like, well, you've got stimulus, which is pretty simple. And then you've got, you know, jQuery that people have used forever. And then you've got React, and sometimes it feels like React is overkill. And yep. several people came came down. I mean, Eric Berry's done a bunch with React and basically said, yeah, well, uh, we started out using React, and pretty soon we had to find us some React experts to, you know, uncomplicate the the stuff that we did to make React work. Exactly. And exactly. It's, it's not React's fault, per se, no. but it doesn't put up the guardrails in the same way that Rails and Stimulus do. And yeah. the other thing is, is that they're generally designed, I mean, Facebook's whole interface is built in React. And with Stimulus, it's JavaScript sprinkles. And so if you if you need everything to interact in a specific way, like Facebook does, or, you know, Shaka Code has their, it used to be friendsandguests.com, and they, they said they changed the name, and I don't remember what it's called. But, uh, you know, it's basically like Airbnb. And I think Airbnb actually uses React as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, where every component on there does something, you know, it's not just a simple layout that displays data and, um, you know, there are a couple of links to click, you know, you hover over the pictures, you can move the pictures, you can see when it's available and on and on and on and on. And, you know, so, so a fully interactive system like that, it makes sense to use something like react, but otherwise, yeah, I, I, I see where you're at. Yeah. I think the demarcation point is, is not necessarily on the complexity of the app, Um, I think the demarcation point on when you would want to use a front-end framework and a back-end framework, so, you know, we're we're hammering on React, but, you know, Angular, whatever else, right? And just to be clear, I have shows, I have a show on Angular, and I'm starting one on React and another one on Vue. So I I see the use for these, so we're not hammering on them badly. I'm just saying, you know, there are use cases for all these things. That's right. And we at, at Reinteractive, we have apps that are on React and apps that are on Angular. And we have probably our largest project right now is Rails and Angular. You know, we, uh-huh. we have six devs full time on a project. Uh, that's that's a Rails and Angular project. But I think that's the key point, right? We have six devs on it. And the reason we have six devs on it is that project is large enough to have a back end team and a front end team. And that those two teams are communicating via clear APIs. And that yeah. those APIs, you need a, a number of the projects big enough that you need enough developers to optimize 
both sides of that equation. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's the demarcation point. If if you're building an app that's that's going to need that many developers on it, um, then you need to, you know, doing it in that way is is needful because it means your front end devs can work theoretically and and in a lot of times in practice independently of your back end team. Right. And that there can be communications in between. And I think that's that's where things like React, Backbone, Vue, uh, why do I keep saying Backbone? Um, React, <laughs> Angular, Vue. Because you're old could like you, me. Could you just, yeah, could you just edit all of that out? Like, that'd, that'd be great. <laughs> that's where those front-end apps, uh, app frameworks make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's it's almost like, do I use TurboLinks or do I create native mobile apps? Well, if you have if you're big enough to have a dedicated team doing Android and iOS separately, as well as your main app, then yeah, do native. If you don't have a big enough team for that, do TurboLinks and then eventually replace it out. But the crazy thing is a single developer working on a Rails app that's very competent is probably going to be more productive on a, on a scale of app mm-hmm. to two or three developers working on you know the back end, the front end, and two mobile. You're probably going to get about the same amount done. And I think the the classic example of this is is Basecamp. You know, they just keep expanding, but I don't know how many devs they've got, but I'd be surprised if it's above ten or fifteen. Um, and then they're, they're massive in that aspect. And why does that work? Well, they're they're picking their problems, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think choosing a technology for technology's sake, because it's it's bright and shiny, and you've got this fear of missing out. You know, if I don't do a React project, then I won't be employable in the future. Yeah, that's, that's garbage. Um, good developers are always in high demand. I know because I hire, I've hired more developers than many people have, uh, and the good ones are always in high demand. Um, it's just the way it is. Makes sense. Well, um, we we went off on a really long tangent, which is fun, <laughs> and I, I I I love I love it because you know it's like. It shows how you think about these issues, right? And it gives some people something to chew on. Um, but but I do kind of want to get back to the you know the standard interview just because you know I I scheduled forty five minutes with you and we're already at almost forty. So um, so yeah, but but I completely agree with you on on pretty much all of the things that you're saying about uh, Rails and stimulus and and where things could and should be used and right. For me, at least, I mean, I do have a bias there because, you know, I pull up rails and I just crank code out. Um, yeah. You know, even even when I was out of practice, I could still crank. But, you know, and, and I'm not saying that's not possible in other places. I'm just saying, given my experience, it, it just makes a ton of sense to go with rails. Um, yeah, totally. But yeah, let, let's get back to, to you and your experience, your story. Um, so we talked about how you got into rails or and Ruby. Um, what things have you done with Ruby that you're most proud of? Is it the mail gem or are there other things that you're really proud of as well that you want to talk about? Yeah, interesting. Uh, obviously the mail gem I'm very proud of, uh, even though I think the reason I'm most proud of the mail gem is that I've managed to create a, a library that has a life of its own now. You know, I'm not involved day to day on pull requests on the mail gem. And it's still growing and expanding and getting new releases and, and all that sort of stuff. And to have created something that has an ongoing life of its own, it's been around now for, wow, almost a decade. 
that's that's sobering. I actually haven't thought of that. <laughs> but it's been around for yeah. almost a decade and will probably be around for another decade or two. Uh, is is pretty amazing, you know, and and it's touched literally billions of people. I would say, you know, if not billions, many multiples of hundreds of millions of people. I mean, there's been a hundred million downloads of the thing. So, and that includes all versions and every install. So, I don't know, conservatively, two million applications out there, maybe. And you look at that and you go, "Wow, you know, I'm the thing that I wrote is helping power." a significant percentage of the internet and I did it for free. You know, that's pretty cool. And you look you look at that and, and very proud. It also helped me enable, you know, what did I do with Ruby? Well, you know, it's interesting that another thing I'm very proud of is, is reinteractive and the team and the culture that we've managed to build around Ruby and Ruby on Rails and the philosophy of that. You know, we've built hundreds of applications that are powering a whole ton of businesses out there and significantly contributing to the worldwide economy. And you look at that and you go, wow, you know, that's that's because I picked Ruby at day one that we could build that. You know, Ruby developers and the Ruby community is renowned for its attitude. You know, Matt's is nice, so we are nice is is still a mantra in our community. And we've built up a whole company around that. And that idea that, you know, that the company should be somewhere where you can work for a long time and, you know, you don't have to try and move company to get a raise or, or things like this, which happens in the other industries. And, you know, our retention rate for a software development company, our turnover rate's quite low. You know, we, mm -hmm. I still have staff that have been working with me since 2010. Oh, wow. That are developers. That's you forever know. in developer years. Yeah, I know, right? And it's even more forever in a consulting company. Oh yeah. Right. So, it, yep. and we're not, you know, we're not producing a single product. This is, these are team members that have been with me helping run our, our ops care stack and all sorts of things. And I have several of my team that have been with me for five years and, and even more that have been with us for three or more years. And even that is a lot, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think the average turnover rate in Australia for a developer is about 18 months. So, you know, to create a culture like that, that's, I'm very proud of that. You know, we yeah. really try and look after our developers and, and make them feel, you know, not make them feel like, actually let them contribute to the way the company's rolling and take their advice and their opinion seriously and figure out how we can integrate that and consult them on major decisions. And we keep them briefed every week on what's going on. And and that can be a challenge when you're running a 100% remote work company. Like we don't actually have an office. We're not just remote friendly. We, mm -hmm. we are remote. Uh, so I'm talking to you from my house at the moment because that's where I work. Uh, and, you know, I think that's, they're the two most proud things I think I've created with Ruby. You know, the MailGem and, and its impact around the world, which is completely unknown. You know, I don't know exactly what it is. I didn't get told who downloads it, but <laughs> every major Rails app that's been built in the last 10 years has used my software. So there you go. And building up reinteractive in light of what we built with Ruby and, and how we build it and the sort of developer that we attract as a result. It's been, been fantastic. I think the other, probably the third one is our Ruby on Rails install fest. And this is a really interesting thing because the install fest wouldn't work with most other technology stacks because what we do in the install fest is 
you come along with or without any programming experience, you bring your laptop, we help install a Ruby on Rails development environment on that laptop. And then within two and a half hours, you have got the two and a half to three hours. You've got the development environment installed. You've written your first blog app and you've published it. And it's live on the internet for anyone to go and see your blog. That's awesome. Yeah. And we've been doing that for free now. We we do that every, I think we do about 12, one a month at least all around Australia. And we've put either just on one and a half thousand or just over one and a half thousand people through that over the past three years. And it blows people away. You know, they've built something and it's live and it's on the internet and they can send a link to their friend to open it on their phone and it works. You know, it completely blows people away. Yep. And we've actually kicked off a whole bunch of development careers off that. In fact, we hired someone. It was funny. Last year, we hired someone. I said, how did you get into Rails? And they went, well, through an install fest. And I went, oh, nice. Awesome. <laughs> Finally, it's happened after three years. <laughs> so so is that just a local event that you put on? It's in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide okay. at the moment. We've had one run up in Singapore. Someone just put that on up there. Uh, and we've also partnered with about four universities, and we do it with them now. Uh, but we're definitely looking to take this a bit more global. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it's it's been fantastic. You know, we, we did it at a university and this university student in the feedback said, this was singularly the most productive thing I've ever done at university. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Well, cool. So, yeah, they've all been good. That's awesome. So what are you working on now? Growing reinteractive. Uh, I've also got a learning management system that we're building out. Um, that's all being done in Rails. Uh-huh. Uh, that's been going fantastic. We're, we're trying to solve the problem of of online learning. <laughs> Good uh, luck. I haven't found one I like, so... Like, how hard could that be, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but his, I keep picking these how hard could that be problems and then, you know, years <laughs> later going, actually, that was really hard. But the problem we're trying to solve is uh, the average, I think, I'm not sure where this statistic actually came from, but... You know, I've read it on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, The average completion rate for an online course is 4%. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me either because I look at all the online courses that I've started and I could probably list on my hand, one hand, how many I've finished. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just strikes me as as wrong. So we're trying to build a, a platform that pushes that percentage up and We've already had about 12,000 odd students go through and their completion rate was 60%. So we found some, we found something, uh, and now we just need to start taking the, the uh, manual work out of it to make it, you know, available to the masses and really launch in a big way. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things I'm currently working on. And, and that's going to be interesting because again, that's just one big monolithic Rails app. Right, and it handles all the load, and it does all the things, and and uh, I've got you know myself and another developer working on it, and we're having a lot of fun. That other developer actually is is uh, Ryan Bates, a good friend of mine, and he's now diving in with me, and and we're building that out and having a ball. And he works remotely, and uh, we just sync up every day, and and we're rolling through it. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, but the main things outside of that is just growing 
reinteractive and our, you know, our Rails hosting services because, you know, I, I look at it, there's tens of thousands, if not 100,000 business Rails apps out there that are getting old mm-hmm. and they all support critical business systems. And I think the market for Rails developers isn't, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Nope. It'll keep getting bigger. You know, it's really funny. I was on Hacker News yesterday and read this article from something about someone about uh, what the job market's like for developers and and who what's want. It was like this big, long report. And as I read down it, Rails always ended up sort of smack bang in the middle of almost every metric, you know, Uh Uh, like most popular on Stack Overflow and, and all these sorts of things, right? And one thing that I, I find quite funny is people will point to the number of questions on Stack Overflow as a metric as to how popular the language is and how much it's growing. And I think it's a false metric because one of the things about Rails is that not many people have to ask a lot of questions on Stack Overflow because right. they Google it and they find the answer and bam, that's done, you know, and they don't have to sort of get confused and run into a problem because it solves most of them. So, you know, if if I was a brand new developer now looking to get into the, the web development space, I'd totally go down the Rails route. I would then find a couple of small shops that, that want a new site that needs interaction and I'd offer to build it for them and bam, you're suddenly a bona fide, competent, professional Rails developer because someone paid you to build a site. And, uh, you know, even with my company, I have sort of a group of freelancers that I sort of keep on the books that I refer clients to that can't afford to engage us as a company because obviously we're a big company. We have a lot of cost to cover, so our prices are expensive. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm handing off client work all the time. I, I went and saw one on Friday and, and they're too small for us. Not because we don't want to do the work. We'd, we'd love to. It's just that they're a small business and they can't afford to pay what we charge, but they can afford to pay a freelancer a bit less and, you know, get that personal touch and one person to do everything and they can do it because they're just on rails. You know, it's just one app. So definitely big market. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, the last segment of this, by the way, I want to check out your LMS. Um, (laughs) No worries. The the last segment of the show is uh, picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So do you have some things you want to shout out about? Yeah, I was actually, I was actually looking at this and um, I was thinking, what would, I, what would I pick right now? Um, 
purely selfish. I mean, on the LMS side, it's it's called Enlight, E-N-L-I-G-H-T, um, dot training. So you can have a look at that later and, and get in contact. But in terms of my picks, I've got two that have got nothing to do with programming. And uh, I think it's it's really important. The first one is Eat to Live by Dr. Joel Furman. And uh, this guy's an absolute genius. And one of the most underrated parts of being a programmer, I think, is, is we do all this optimization with tools and build pipelines and, and code bases and all this sort of stuff uh, in order to optimize our ability to program. And then we conveniently forget that if we don't have the right food in our bodies, we've got we've decreased our cognitive performance by, you know, a factor of two or three or four because we're sitting there with a coffee hangover or we just came down off a sugar high or whatever else. And it's it's really sort of counterintuitive that we're optimizing almost the wrong thing. You know, we saved we saved three minutes uh, by automating our build pipeline, uh, but we spent two hours longer than we should have because our brain was foggy and we couldn't work out the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been doing some stuff with that and highly recommended book, very well worth read. And the other one is um, the build process by uh, Wintergarten, this mobile uh, Marble Machine X. I don't know if your listeners might have remembered this crazy device which had all these marbles rolling around with sort of a funky beat. And uh, it's a great YouTube video. Just Google Marble Machine. It's it's well worth watching and it, it's just fascinating to watch. And he's building a new version of that that's, you know, much more complex. And he's basically chronicling his entire build of this thing and all of the problems he's running into and development. And it's just fascinating to watch the problem-solving process and, you know, looking at how do you solve things in the physical universe as opposed to in the mental one, which was what we do in software all the time. So Marble Machine X build by by Wintergarten and uh, Eat to Live by Dr. Joel Furman. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and do a couple of picks. Um, one thing that I wound up doing uh, this month is traveling to Las Vegas for CES. And I've had all these companies sending me all kinds of devices to try out. Uh, a, a lot of them, I saw them at CES, and now they're sending them to me. So I'm going to pick a couple of my favorites. Uh, by the time this comes out, I should probably have reviews up on YouTube for several of them. Um, so just go to devchat.tv slash YouTube, and that'll take you to the YouTube channel where you can find them. Um, but one of them is um, uh, the, the company is Astro Reality. And they do, basically, they have 3D printed models of, um, the first one I got was the moon. So I have a Lunar Pro, um, is what they call it. I got it at a Microsoft conference, actually. Um, (laughs) Long story. But anyway, that was their uh, sort of door prize, you know, that they handed out when you came in or left. Um, And the thing is freaking heavy. But uh, the Lunar Pro, what it is, is um, it's a model of the moon. And it's, you know, it's, it's colored and everything. And then what you have is you download the Astro Reality app and you register your Lunar Pro. They also have a normal size, uh, a medium sized and a small sized uh, moon. Um, and then you, you use your phone as a uh, virtual reality device. And so you point wow. it at the moon and it finds the features on the moon and you can, um, you can look at all of the different places that astronauts have landed and it shows pictures and videos and the whole nine yards. And my kids loved it. It was absolutely cool. Um, the review units that I got, 
um, after going to CES because I showed up and they're like, let us show us, show you the moon. I'm like, I have one. And they were like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, because nobody else, you know, I'm sure straight nobody out, else. Straight out of Monty Python, right? It, yeah. We have the Holy Grail. We've already got one. What do you mean you've already got one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the things that they were showing off at CES were they have a notebook and I'm a sucker for cool notebooks. Um, I, my favorite one's like a, a Zelda one with the Triforce on it. Anyway, um, I digress. So um, they were showing off uh, a notebook that has augmented reality in the front and back cover. And right. so you, you know, you point your phone at it and um, a model of the moon pops up out of the um, out of the cover. And then you can walk around it and, you know, you can do some of the same things you can do with the other thing. And, you know, other parts of it just animate. Anyway, it's really cool. Um, the other thing that they showed off were, were they had miniatures of all of the planets in the solar system, kind of like the moon. And so you could actually, you know, augmented reality walk around it. And it would, it, it didn't point out features on the planets. It sounded like that might be coming later. But it was mostly that uh, they, you know, it just gives you information about the planets. And so it tells you about all of the different parts. And then, yeah, you can move around it and, and look at it from different angles. So nice. Anyway, uh really, really cool stuff. So um I'm I'm looking forward to doing some reviews on that. And then I got a whole mess of coding toys um to teach kids to code. And I'll probably doing be doing reviews on those. Um and and they have all kinds, and it's really kind of fun. I think my favorite ones were um they had these blocks that snap together magnetically. And each block has a different function to it. So one of them's a motor with wheels, and one of them's the battery, and one of them's like a, a proxy, you know, a, a sensor. So you put your hand in front of it, and it'll tell if there's something in front of it and how far away it is. Um, and so you can set it up so that, for example, you can have a little motorized uh, robot that will follow your hand, or you can have it so that it will keep going until it detects there's something in front of it and then stop, or you know, just things like that. And so you can walk your child through thinking critically about all these things. They had an inverter too. Um, so the one sensor um, would send a hundred percent if there was something right in front of it. But if you changed if you put the inverter on it, then it was zero if there was something in front of it and a hundred percent if there was nothing in front of it. And so it would actually just go until it detected it was getting close to something. And so, wow. so you, you know, you can teach your kids um, sort of uh, conditionals and things like that, you know, based on whether or not the inverters in there and, Anyway, really, really fun stuff. So, um, I, you know, I'm working on, like I said, getting review units of a lot of these and then just showing off what people have to offer. And some of the stuff wasn't super programmer centric. You could reprogram those cubes, for example. Um, you know, and some of it was just cool stuff that I thought was cool, like the solar system. So <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so I'm going to just uh, shout out about those couple of things and, um, I'll put links to them in the show notes. Um, yeah, it's awesome. But yeah, just just really really fun stuff. So um, I'm positive that you know AR and VR, the technologies that mm -hmm. it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's almost like the technology is is almost ahead of what we're doing with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at how powerful your iPhone is now compared to what we had ten years ago um, or Absolutely. two years ago. It's just crazy. Well, and I, I kind of see, so we have machine learning and I think some of the more interesting aspects of machine learning, I mean, sure, we have machine learning that will 
tell us things that we, you know, couldn't deduce on our own from large data sets. You know, so we're, we're going to become enlightened about our world, I think, through machine learning. But the other yeah. thing is, is that machine learning is capable of learning your habits. And so yes. um, I, I kind of foresee us um, basically integrating machine learning with IoT and training it with augmented reality that we have built yeah. in in a form factor that's a little more convenient than holding your phone in front of your face. Yeah, that's right. And my, my only terror on that is that the companies that are at the forefront of that are advertising agencies. That wouldn't shock me. Or, or, so, at, least, you know, or at least they might. Yeah, I mean, like Google, yeah, but, but Google in, in a nutshell is an advertising agency, right? Or advertising federation company. Yep. So, um, so is Facebook. They, and they, they're exactly. at the forefront of a lot of this stuff too. So that's the terrifying bit. So we, we need a, uh, a non-advertising agency to, to get the standard out there. <laughs> but anyway, we'll see. That's, another, that's another podcast, I think. Yep. But yeah, I mean, to the point where you, you interact with everything around you, you know, we talk about self-driving cars is another, um, it, it's, it's sort of an IoT on a larger scale um, yeah. with some smarts built in. But, um, you know, same thing, you know, you get in and through some form of augmented reality, you know, or you just tell it where you want to go, but you know, you can give it other directions, you know, you'll interact with devices. Yeah, or more you go to you go to your car and, and it goes, Well, I know that you've got a meeting now at this location and yeah. I've already booked in a parking space and you sit in and just starts driving and you keep working. You know. I mean it will get to that. Yep. And it comes up on your heads up display. You need to get in your car within the next two minutes or you're gonna be late. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I totally I'm totally with you. And you know, it's funny because uh, you sit down with two or three people that really understand some of the capabilities here, you know, and and I'm kind of an amateur at this. I'm guessing you are too, for the most part. Um, but just thinking through the possibilities, you know, of, of what the technology offers, I mean, just incredible it's crazy. stuff. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Anyway, and going on, we'll have a whole new meeting. Anyway, yeah. yes, we're, we're, we're getting away. <laughs> we, we are, you know, our, our 45 minute interview went for an hour. Um, yeah. Just just to wrap up, um, if people want to follow you on GitHub or Twitter or maybe you have a blog, okay. want to hire At, Reinteractive, where's all that stuff? Yep. So reinteractive.com is Reinteractive. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Linzar. I don't do a lot of Twittering, tweeting. Mm -hmm. uh, I said Twittering on purpose. Um, I've got a blog, linzar.net. So yeah, they're the main things. Uh, the training, the learning management platforms and light.training. And uh, yeah, you can reach me out on any one of those methods. I'm more than happy to chat about all sorts of things. So if, if a new developer wants to ask me a question, feel free to email me. I'll most likely answer unless I'm completely snowed under, but it's well worth trying anyway. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming, Michael. Thank you very much, Charles, for having me. And uh, hopefully we can do this again some other time. Yep, absolutely. Soon. Yep, we'll come back at you all next week with another Ruby story. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.